Well, good morning. Glad you're with us this morning. Uh, as we continue that thought of inviting, uh, let me encourage you. I've, I've shared this with you before, but you may have forgotten. 80% of the people who attend Alpha within 12 months of participating in Alpha end up beginning a relationship with Christ. That is the way the Lord has been using this ministry, a place where people can ask questions and hear truth and really listen to their own reasonings about their faith or lack of faith. So I want to encourage you again, it, it's not restricted to Mandarin. So all the folks who are joining us live stream who don't live in Jacksonville, you can invite to this as well. It's pretty easy. You can go to our website, and there is on our website at Alpha uh, an opportunity to forward an invitation and to give people a sense of what it's like by just giving them a, a short taste of a video that they would see in Alpha. So I want to encourage you. It's, it's just reality that all of us have folks that don't know the Lord that we wish did. We can't make them trust in Jesus, but we can invite them into a place where they can be introduced to the Savior that we love. I think of Alpha, if Jesus is the door, which is what he says he is, he's the door. Alpha is the front porch that gets folks to the door. So I want to invite you to invite people to the front porch. As a reminder of the power of invitation... We had invited you last week to begin in participating in our one, two, three missions project. One offering, two countries, three projects. And I wanted to give you an update on that, and that is already just halfway through the month, of which we're giving to this, you have given $38,000 to the one, two, three projects. So really grateful for that. <clears throat> And you, if you have forgotten, that means that the full match of the elders of 30,000, so there's 68,000 already given to these projects. And so if you haven't given yet, I want to encourage you to do so. But let me remind you, how much would have you given had we not invited you to? Zero, right? That's my point. None of this would have happened apart from an invitation. So I cannot guarantee you if you invite somebody to Alpha, they'll come. I can only guarantee you if they don't, they won't. Right? So nothing would have been given towards this had there not been an invitation. An invitation simply opens the door. So thank you for your responsiveness to it. And we're praying that the Lord will do a good work both in this church now in Spain that we'll be able to meet together and in, through the ministries in Bangladesh. All right. So you glad you're here? Yeah, four of you are? Uh, you glad you joined us online? I, I'm, gl I'm glad that you're here. Uh, and I'm glad you got here before the rain started uh, again. And I'm glad that the scripture has been given to us. So I want to invite you to turn with me. I, I absolutely, I never get tired of saying how much I love this book. Because I, I'm always amazed at how rich it is for us. And so let me invite you to turn to Genesis 25 with me. We have been looking now for quite a number of weeks at Abraham, the friend of God, and what it means to be friend of God. And there's been a lot of ups and downs in Abraham's life. Tonight, uh, this morning, why did I say tonight? I guess it's because it's dark out. It, this morning... We're going to look at the closing years in Abraham's life. And with these closing years, I've been really challenged. I can admit to you that when we first laid out the life of Abraham when I was going to teach it, we laid it out a year ago. Tonight, God, what is with that? <laughs> this morning was not, <laughs> that's really weird, this morning was not a part of the series as we laid it out. But as I looked at Genesis 25 again, I was like, I just can't pass this. So as you turn there, I hope you turn there, we're gonna see this morning uh, that it opens a can of worms that we have to kind of answer. And then it gives us some profound wisdom 
that I hope you'll apply. And then there is this one word that gets put on, if you will, Abraham's tombstone, if he had one, the the epitaph that, that summarizes his life that I was really encouraged and challenged by. So let's start with the the can of worms. Genesis 25, verse one. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now, what you might not remember is that last week, Ryan just covered it very briefly in Genesis chapter 23, that Sarah died. And so it seems like Sarah died, and now with Sarah dead, Abraham takes another wife. So this brings the women in Abraham's life from Sarah, Hagar, remember the mistress of Sarah, whom they involved in their marriage to try to bear a son, didn't turn out well. But now there's a third woman, Keturah. And I don't know if you ever knew that there was a third woman in Abraham's life named Keturah. But here's where it gets a little wormy, a little like squirrely, if you will. Verse two says, she bore to him. And there are now six names that I won't try to say for you, but here's why they're important. She bore to Abraham son number one, two, three, four, five, and six. Now, does that not make you go, what? If you're like with it this morning, you're like, are, are, are you suggesting, Doug, is the scripture saying that Abraham had six sons after he turned 137 because Sarah died at 127. Abraham was 10 years older. So if what we normally think happens here, Abraham's wife Sarah dies, so he marries another woman at a age 137. Now he had six sons. Does that not make you a little bit, I can't see your faces in here, but does that make you not go a little bit, hmm? Yeah, yes, it does me. Because what about all this from Genesis 17? Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? If that makes you fall down laughing, what does 137 and six of them do? You, You get it? It's like, Okay, what's going on here? And then, just to add to the worminess, this can of worms, what it says in Chronicles is this. The sons of Keturah, Abraham's concubine. What's that? Is a concubine a wife? No, no. Here's a concubine. A concubine was a woman acquired by a man as a secondary wife. All the wives, you excited about that idea right there? A secondary wife? Her purpose was to provide a male heir in case of a barren wife, to provide more children in general, to enhance the family's workforce and wealth and to satisfy the man's sexual desires. A concubine was endowed with rights and protections by Hebrew law, but was not equal in status to a wife. So what's going on here? It's kind of like weird that we're going, oh, these are the closing years, and now we get this. So was she a wife or a concubine? You go, I don't know. That's why I sit out here. Tell us. Uh, Well, I always start with this fundamental conviction. I believe what the scripture says. So was she a wife or a concubine? Yeah, I think she was. Yes. And so the way I unravel it in my mind, and I could be wrong here, is that while... Abraham was married to Sarah and she was barren in the same way that he had taken Hagar to try to produce a son. He had taken Keturah as a concubine, another secondary wife. And she had borne him six sons, but none of them were the son of promise any more than Ishmael, the son of Hagar was the son of promise. So they only get brought into the story as 
Abraham is about to go off the scene as we consider his children and his descendants. So it would seem to me she was his concubine, produced six sons, and then when Sarah died, what happened? She became primary wife. Lucky her. Now, you may go, I don't believe that. That's, that's okay. It seems to me that given what has gone on, that's the most reasonable explanation. But it then leads to this question. So is it okay to have a concubine? Was that good with God for Abraham to have a concubine? Can't see your faces. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What God intended from the beginning when marriage was created, Genesis 2.24, we looked at this months ago. God intended marriage to be one man, one woman, no secondaries, for as long as what? They both, they both live. That's God intention, God's intention in marriage. And that might not be novel to you, but it's important that we understand that just because Abraham was identified in the scripture as a friend of God does not mean that everything that he did reflected the heart of God. Should have he had a mistress in Hagar, a concubine in Keturah? No, that was not God's intent. God's intent was to have one wife, Sarah, and that he would trust that if he promised he would give them an heir, he would give them an heir through his wife, which is exactly what God did. I bring this to our attention, not because I think there are concubines in our congregation. I bring this to our attention because I think we have our own perverting of what God intended in marriage. It was what Jesus spoke to when he references Genesis 2, 24 that I just read. When he references it in Matthew 19, he says this. This is Jesus speaking to those who in his day were saying, is it okay to get a divorce? They're not talking concubines, they're talking divorce. That's more our world, yes? Yes, can't see your faces, yes? Okay, we gotta learn a little nodding in the mask service or something. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Let me go back. Uh, Genesis 2, 24, he says, because the two have become one, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Mo Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you. Big difference between what he intended and what he what was the word here? Permitted. Permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces a wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So the reason Genesis 25 brings this to our attention is because in the same way that Abraham did not follow God's intent because the cultural climate allowed for mistresses and concubines. Church, people of God, what is his intent for marriage? That it be one man, one woman, as long as they both live. And yet, more and more within the church, we see the practice of divorce. 
And I don't want you to hear me say, and I'll say this multiple times, that if you have divorced, that you have committed an unpardonable sin and you are no longer usable by God. That is not what I'm saying what at all. At all. God, God showed grace in Abraham's life, even though he had Hagar, even though he had Keturah. God was gracious to him and God still used him. But let's not shrink back from saying, what is God's intent in marriage? One man, one woman, for as long as they live. He permits divorce if a spouse is unfaithful because that which has uniquely marked them to becoming one has been defiled. And so where there is unfaithfulness, though it's not God's intent, he permits divorce. And in the second case, where there is an unbelieving spouse who leaves a believing spouse, divorce is permitted. That comes from 1 Corinthians 7. We'll look at it in a moment. Because here's the deal. In Corinth, there was a situation where there were married couples who were both unbelievers, and then the gospel came to Corinth. And in certain situations, one of the spouses responded to the, uh, the gospel, and the other didn't. And the scripture says clearly that a believer should not marry an unbeliever, but what happens when two unbelievers marry, and then one of them gets saved? Should that marriage end because we're not to be unequally yoked? And here's what Paul says to that. He says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So you see, the the scripture declares in the case where marriage and then one of them is now a believer and they're unequally yoked, stay married as long as the unbeliever is willing to stay married. Because if you would read more in that chapter, it would say, because who knows how God may use you believing spouse to bring your unbelieving spouse to faith in Jesus So the believer should not end the relationship. But if the unbeliever does, the believer is free. So, friends, I'm here, this first part of this passage, simply to appeal for God's intent in marriage. And to plead, if you this morning are thinking, I think I want out that you wouldn't bail on what God intended for life. I come from a home that was broken by divorce on multiple occasions. And the thought so often is this. My life is so hard, this relationship is so bad, a divorce will just end the heart. And I can tell you as a child who grew up in that, this. A divorce does not end the heart. It only ensures it won't ever end. That's the impact. I was nine years old when my mom and my dad got a divorce. And you might think, oh, I was nine. You get over it. Kids handle stuff well. That's what, that's what we say. Kids are resilient. They'll be okay. And the Lord was gracious to me. But you know, it, it never left our family. It was there every birthday, every Christmas, every high school graduation, every college graduation, every wedding, every holiday. What was it this year? When we go home from Florida to Pennsylvania, stay with mom, stay with dad, who's going to get the most and hell to pay if it wasn't equal? See, it doesn't soft. Now, I'm also profoundly aware that some who are listening right now are going, hey, I'm divorced, but I didn't want to be divorced, Doug, you're killing me. 
here, the grace of God. I am not saying, hear the story of Abraham. I am not saying because of the sin of another or even because of your own sin, if you are responsible for the divorce, that your life is done and you are a second rate in the kingdom of God. That is not true. Part of, part of the, the mercy of Abraham's life is that he was not a great husband. I'm going to just say it. He was not a great husband. And God still used him in one of the most profound ways he's ever used anyone. So there is grace to all of us and all of us have our own sets of failures. I'm simply pleading with you. Would you commit yourself to marriage as God intended you to be married as long as you both live? So let me come back to Abraham now. Is it possible that he didn't marry and Keturah wasn't a part of his life? Is that possible? Hard for me to imagine since she's called concubine in First Chronicles. But if Sarah died, was it allowable to then begin a marriage relationship with Keturah? Yes, absolutely. The scripture gives freedom. God gives freedom to remarry if a spouse dies. This is the way 1 Corinthians 7 that I read from earlier ends. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but her husband is dead, that she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So we, we have seen here at the chapel a really great marriage and a spouse die. And the blessing of God of providing another man, another woman for that individual. There's no sin, no shame, no wrong in remarrying where a spouse has died. So would you join me? Would you? Would you join me, singles, in honoring what God intends for marriage? And married folks, would you join me? in honoring what God intends for marriage. And would we never shun nor look down on or turn our backs on those who have been divorced? Would we be as gracious as God is gracious? I hope you heard my heart equally on marriage and grace. So from the women in uh, Abraham's life to his children, verse five and six. Now Abraham, again, these are the closing years. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, see plural, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. So what I want you to notice is he gave to Isaac in his dying, but he gave to all of his sons in his living. Uh, That's a pretty important observation. To each of his sons, he gave in his living, but he gave only to Isaac in his dying. Uh, Why I want us to not just run right past this is there is reflected in Abraham a stewardship in his living and in his dying. So often, we don't think about stewardship after we die. And here's what Proverbs says. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Now, why doesn't it say just his children? I think a couple of reasons. Number one, I think typically what we see in lifespan is a man, God willing, is blessed with a child and then he lives long enough to see his children, children, grandfather. 
Every once in a while, somebody lives long enough to be a great-grandfather, and sometimes, sadly, people don't live long enough to be a grandfather. They only make it to father if the Lord gives them children, but typically grandfather. I think he's saying this. A wise man, a good man, thinks not just about stewardship as long as he lives. He thinks about how he can bless not only the next generation, but the generation after the next generation. See, the, the vision I have that the Lord has given to me, and I hope you will get in this regard, is you can live in such a way, not only is that you steward your resources to the glory of God as long as you live, you can steward your resources so that two generations beyond you, after you die, you can still be impacting them by the way you steward your resources. So, Because of what the scripture says, I want to suggest to you that establishing, this may seem like weird in a sermon, but establishing a will is a tool to continue your stewardship beyond the grave. So I don't know if you have a will or not, but what I take from Abraham is that he thought about not only what he was responsible for in his living, he planned for what he was responsible for in his dying. And that's what a will does. So practical application here. If you have children, you should establish a will that will bless them. Prior to kids, quite frankly, Uh, This might not be that big a deal, but once you have a child, I want to encourage you, if you have children and don't have a will, you should should take care of that as soon as possible. And, And there are all sorts of resources available to you. Not because that's my idea, because Proverbs said, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. The second thought for you comes from this, Proverbs 20, 21. An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. What's he saying? He's saying, as you prepare a will that will bless your children, make sure your will recognizes the danger of getting rich quick. Is there a danger to getting rich quick? Absolutely. Those who get a bunch at the beginning, he says, it often ends in a wreck because of that. So, as you prepare a will that blesses your children, bless them by doing it in a manner that avoids the get rich quick ditch. Right? Third, your will should consider blessing more than your family. When Abraham gave to Isaac all that he had in his dying, do you know why he did that? Because God had said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm not only going to bless you, but through your son Isaac, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And so, uh, this was novel to me. I had, uh, once, once I understood it's responsible stewardship for me to establish a will, my first thought is, well, I guess... I guess my six kids, you know, you get a six, you get a six, you get a six, you get a six. I die, they get everything. And then I was struck by this reality. It's not why, that's not how I lived. If that's not how I manage my resources and my living, why would that be how I manage in my dying? Here's what I mean. Stewardship of life involves spending wisely, saving responsibly, and sharing generously. That's how we seek to live. I don't spend everything and then not have anything to save or anything to share. I seek to be a manager of what God has given to spend, to save, and to share. And quite frankly, let me just encourage you. If if you're living life so much on the edge that you never have anything to share, you ought to take our financial class 
that actually is starting this morning, but you could jump in next week with Financial Peace University because part of stewardship that honors the Lord is a stewardship that includes spending, saving, and sharing. And it's pretty typical in our current world to not get past the spending. By the time we're done spending, we often don't have anything left to save, let alone to share. Now, why is that reflective of God honoring stewardship? Because I spend and save to bless my family providing for them. That is a God-glorifying, God-honoring act that I spend and save in order to provide for my family. That's how I bless them, by providing for them. But I share because I'm part of a broader family. I'm part of the kingdom of God. I share to bless the local church, my spiritual family, the poor, those who are part of the the spiritual family, but that cannot provide for themselves and for the spiritually lost. And so there's, I realize I'm introducing lots of stuff here. My wife told me literally Thursday night, she was like, too much content, Doug, too much. So I understand if you walk out going, too much content. So let me boil it down. If you have children and don't have a will, A good man, a wise man, takes care of that. So I want to encourage you to do that. And second thought, if, I put it in the form of a question here. If investing in the kingdom of God is important in your living, then why would it be absent in your dying? And so it, it, it has challenged me. I can genuinely Give you my own testimony of, I started with, okay, I need a will. Okay, every, divided by six. And then it was like, we haven't lived that way. Why would, I, why would I handle resources that way in my dying? So I don't want, I don't want my kids to, to struggle with not having enough with having too much. So we'll bless as God is enabled. But they won't get all of it by any means. They haven't gotten all of it in my living. We seek to, as the Lord allows us, to, to give as much as we can. And I want that to be true in our dying as well. So those may be new thoughts for you. Be encouraged. Abraham in his closing years He was responsible for his family, but he understood the kingdom of God needed to be addressed in his dying. That's why he gave it all to Isaac. All right, the final statement in Abraham. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. That's a long time, is it not? 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age. An old man and, uh, say it with me. Say it with me. Satisfied with life. Does that not capture you? Really, what could be better then coming to the end of whatever amount of days that the Lord chooses to give to me, whatever number of days the Lord chooses to give to you, that you would be able to come to the end of your days and be able to go satisfied, content, fulfilled. The word that the scripture gives to put, if you will, on Abraham's tombstone, satisfied. I imagine that resonates in everybody's heart. That that you would go, satisfied. Now listen. (laughs) What's the opposite? 
And don't say dissatisfied. Give me some other words. What's the opposite of satisfied? Sorry. Disappointed? Regret? Wanting? Right? I don't think anybody listening right now is going, yeah, that's the way I'd like to end my life. Regretting and disappointed and wanting. No, every single person, I don't really care who you are in the sense that in your heart is this, that I wanna, you know, like a, like a good meal. And you kind of push back to the table and go, man, that was just so good. To be able to push back whatever number of the Lord the, year, the years gives me, the Lord gives me, to be able to push back from life and go satisfied, content, fulfilled. And it's not complicated. Because it's in the heart of every one of us, understand, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, he's not saying that he'll do everything that you want. Because eternity will reveal that God in his mercy and in his grace did not do everything you wanted. There will be, I think, when we look back and go, oh, thank God you did not answer that prayer. Thank you you didn't, didn't do what I wanted there. In Christ, in his wisdom, in his goodness, in his perfect love for you, do you believe you will never be disappointed? I believe that. To believe in him is to believe he loves me perfectly. His goodness will never fail. His wisdom, perfect. And so, satisfied in life. Only found through believing in Jesus. It's only found, only found there. That's why he says, Anyone is thirsty, that's anybody wanting, anybody disappointed, <laughs> let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Don't you love that? From his innermost being will flow rivers, rivers of living water. It's not like, I'm thirsty, could I have a swig? Oh, here's, here's just... Oh, thank you. No, it's not something that happens externally. It's something that happens internally. That God, in his love for us, gives us his son to pay the penalty for our sin so that when we believe in him, he pours his spirit into us so that in us is the life of of God and through us is now flowing the life of God and in the life of God and the life of God flowing through you and I there will be satisfied content fulfilled you know why so many of us aren't satisfied because we're looking for it to happen externally. We're looking for the things externally that will bring us satisfaction. And what Jesus says is, I'm going to invite you to relationship with me because satisfaction is something that only happens internally. And that's through relationship with me. And when you enter into a relationship with me, I not only come and dwell within you, my life begins to flow through you. So that I not only experience 
experience the love of God. The love of God flows through me. I not only experience the peace of God, the peace of God flows through me. I not only experience joy, but joy flows through me. So let me ask you, would it be true that it, your life, your life right now, today, this week, this coming week, that you would say your life is characterized by rivers of living water flowing through you? I make you thirsty? Do you look at your life and then look at that verse and go, oh, what am I missing? Because I, I like rivers of living water and I think I believe in Jesus. What am I missing? Jeremiah helps us. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. See, when you and I can't say in our heart of hearts, yeah, I am contented, I am fulfilled, I am satisfied in Jesus, I am experiencing not only his life within, but I am experiencing his life flowing through me. That is a giveaway, folks, that we have we have tried to find life and joy and happiness and satisfaction in external things. And they are broken. We find it in money and then it takes wings, the scripture says. We try and find it in looks and then we get old. <laughs> or find it in approval of others and what happens? We find ourselves abandoned. The life that you and I long for, that you and I have been made for, is only found in believing in Jesus. Not just knowing about him, not just coming to church, not saying the right things. It's about believing in him. And watch to believe in Jesus is to go all those old broken cisterns I used to try and find life in, I turn from them. Because you can't add Jesus to one of your seven cisterns. You either find, try to find life in the broken ones or you repent and you find life in him. You and I will only discover that Jesus is all we need when we decide he's all I want. I don't want from that broken cistern. I don't want from that broken cistern. I don't want from that broken cistern. I want Jesus. I, I only want him. that what's in your heart this morning? You see, I want to invite you. If you have not trusted in, not just known about Jesus, but trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you to, to repent, to acknowledge you've been looking for life in broken cisterns. And that you would come to him the living fountain and drink and be satisfied in life and in death. Satisfied in Jesus. Satisfied that whatever he brings into my life, he will give me all that I need. And so joy is not based on my circumstances. Peace is not based on my circumstances. Peace and joy are in a person and he dwells within me. I believe in Jesus. He's living water. I want to invite you to, to bow with me.
fact that you have breath in your lungs right now is evidence that God is not finished with you yet. He still invites you to to come and find life in him. Would you in this quiet moment before the Lord repent of anything that you've been seeking to find life in and tell him right now, Jesus, I believe you are living water and rivers of it. I want you to be the one that that not only fills me, but flows through me. Jesus, I want all of who you are and only you. Lord, I long for every one of us to be able to come to the end of our days recognizing we haven't been perfect. We've made a lot of mistakes just like Abraham did. We've been foolish. We've rebelled. But we have trusted in you and in your grace. We've trusted in you to be life. And not only life eternal, but life abundant. Thank you for the invitation to come and to believe and to receive. As an overflow of this prayer, we're going to respond in a, in a song. And, and the way this song is going to happen is Matt's going to declare a, a broken cistern. One of the things that you and I would be tempted to trust in. And then after he sings about that, he's going to invite us to declare with him this. You listening? Jesus, you are better than these things. And it'll be easy. The words that we're going to sing together are in caps. So we're going to listen to what the broken systems we're tempted to put our trust in. And then we're going to declare together, Jesus, you are better than these things. So let me invite you to stand with me and let's declare this is a reflection that we believe in Jesus. All the money that the world can hold Mountains made of solid gold Riches that Open door. 
So, Father, believing that, we present these bodies to you now to be instruments of God for more people finding more life in Jesus. That your life in us, Lord, would flow like rivers through us. That we would be a blessing to our family. That we would be a blessing to those that we work with, that we'd be a blessing to this community. And Lord, that that blessing wouldn't stop with our life. That blessing would continue for the generations to come. We present ourselves to you, your instruments, according to your great grace. Thank you for your son, our savior. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, there are always men and women available to pray. If you are longing to find life and satisfaction, I hope you'll stop by and invite one of the men and women available for prayer to pray with you that you would know life in Jesus. God bless. Thanks for being here.